Hey friends, this is Ray Kozek, the pastor at St. Paul's. You're listening to Jesus in the Center One Year Bible Podcast. Today is day 26, 26 of January, or whenever you get around to it. Going to jump right in and look at our readings today from Exodus 2 and 3 from Matthew 17. Let's jump right in. Here we are in Exodus chapter 2. Remember, much time has gone on. Joseph has died. At least 200 and maybe 80 years have passed. And now the people in, in the land, the Israelites, the Hebrews, are flourishing. Yet the people there hate them. There's a new king in Egypt. And this king, or a series of kings, make an edict, an unjust, horrible law, to say, kill the Hebrew boys. And the Hebrew midwives... They fear God. They do not obey this unjust law. Instead, they trust God, and it does seem to work out. There's then one to be born named, well, his name will end up being Moses, and his parents also trust God. They are believers, and they also defy the orders of the Pharaoh, and they hatch this plan through the providence of God to keep their baby boy alive. They literally place him in an ark, Uh, which is translated basket, same word for ark. So just as Noah was saved through an ark here, Moses is saved through an ark, which just means box. Well, anyway, isn't it cool how, think of Pharaoh. He can, in some ways, control the whole nation of Egypt, but he can't control his household. Through his own house, mercy is given to those that he hates. Here we see Moses. He's grown up. This is chapter 2, verse 11. And this is significant. It says, He went out to his people. In the NIV, it says he went out to where his own people were. But the ESV says he went out to his people. I think the wording of this is significant. He, his heart is toward them. He knows he's Hebrew. No doubt he looks different than the Egyptians. No doubt he knows and remembers. What does he remember of his own people? His mother nursed him. When was he adopted by Pharaoh's daughter? We don't know. But he knows he's a Hebrew. He knows Uh, The God who made him, he, of course, learned all the wisdom, it says, of Egypt. That's Acts chapter 7. But he rejected it. That's Hebrews 11. tells us that. He rejected it. He goes out to his people, and he looks on their burdens. Three times here in the story, we see Moses standing up for those who are being wronged. First time, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And so he says to himself, Vengeance is mine, says Moses. And... He kills the guy, buries him in the sand. Next day he goes out and he tries to break up a fight between two Hebrews. And they know it. They spill the beans. And it turns out everyone knows. Everyone knows that I killed an Egyptian. And then Pharaoh wants to kill him. And for a while I didn't understand this. Why would Pharaoh want to kill his son Moses for killing an Egyptian? I mean, I'm sure lots of Egyptian slaves and taskmasters got killed all the time. No big deal. Well, I think, this is my theory, that Pharaoh, this Pharaoh, had a grudge against Moses. He knows he's not of his own household. He's adopted. He's a Hebrew. He's these people that we despise, and he's in my own household. And so Pharaoh finds an excuse to kill him. And so Moses flees to Midian. This is the Sinai Peninsula. Don't know exactly where. And the third time, he stands up for those who are being wrong. This is turns out to be that these... These seven daughters are daughters of the priest of Midian. Now, if you remember back in Genesis, I think it's 25, after Sarah died, and maybe even before, 
Abraham took another wife, Keturah, and had sons. One of them is Midian. And so likely, or perhaps, at this time, the Midianites, the priest of Midian, Jethro or Ruel, maybe he's a believer in Yahweh. No doubt he would have learned this from his greater father, Abraham. We don't know. Eventually the Midianites fall into the same temptations that the other nations do, and they worship false gods. But who knows, at this time, it seems like everything we know about Jethro is that he's wise, and he's godly, and he's generous. And so anyway, it turns out that Moses marries one of his daughters, Zipporah. It's a pretty cool name. And then there's this transition at the end of chapter 2 where where the people are groaning out, and they cry out for help. And no doubt, their cry of help goes out to Yahweh, to the God of their fathers. And I love this. It says that God heard, he remembered his covenant. Remember, when we think about the word remember, it means that God is acting. So God heard, God remembered his covenant, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. In the NIV, it says that God was concerned with them. But I think it it is that. God knew. I think it also, God knows what he's about to do, how he will remember his covenant and act for the salvation of his people. And so he's going to do it. He allowed Moses to, to go out to Uh, Sinai to this mountain and he's out there as the shepherd of his father-in-law's sheep. By the way, when you see the Mount Horeb, that's also Mount Sinai. It's the same mountain, different names. Anyway, it says in verse 2 that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in this burning bush. And then in verse 4 it says, the Lord saw that he turned aside to see God and God called him from the bush. So in this bush is both the angel of the Lord, that is Remember, the word angel is not, it's not a fixed word. There, there are specific angels in the Bible, like seraphim and teraphim, that have different roles. But angel just means messenger. So we can also sometimes see an angel as the angel of the Lord. That is Jesus. At least here we can say that. How do we know? Because it says, the Lord saw. And who's in the bush? It is God. So the angel of the Lord here is God. And we can say, thanks be to God, that it's Jesus who showed up all the time. God says to him, don't come near, take off your sandals. The place in which you're standing is holy ground. And he tells him who he is. I'm the God of your father. Not fathers, it's the God of your father. And we don't know who his father is here. We'll find out later in chapter 6. It's a guy named Amram. That's a cool name, Amram. Chapter 6, verse 20. But we know from the previous chapter that his parents had faith. And they defied the orders of the Pharaoh. I don't know why I keep coming back to that. I think it's because in our days, we are going to have to defy unjust laws. So just tuck that in your mind. It's it's okay. You, we will bear the consequences of it, but we must stand firm. Anyway, moving on. Uh, God shows up to him and says, I'm the God of your father. And then going way back, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. By the way, Jesus will quote from this later to prove that God is the God of the living. He quotes this to the Sadducees, and those people don't believe in everlasting life or the resurrection. But Jesus, from this text, proves that God is the God of the living. Anyway, he goes on, and and the Lord says that he's seen, he's heard, he knows their suffering, he comes down. And that word, come down, that's an important phrase that will be recurring. Anyway, God knows Isaiah 63, 9, you can look that up and following. Isaiah is giving a commentary on God's 
affection toward his people in this time. And he says this, that in all of their affliction, he was afflicted. The angel of his presence saved them. So here, in in their affliction, in their slavery, the Lord himself felt their affliction. And so he's coming to act. Anyway, it's pretty cool. And God says to, to Moses that I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people out. And then Moses has four, uh, no, five different times where I like to call it trying to get out, trying to get out of it, number one. Number one is, he says, he says, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I already tried two times to help out my fellow brothers and it didn't work out at all, right? They don't want to listen to me. I'm a failure. So he says, who am I? That's number one. The Lord responds, I will be with you. That word, I will be, is the same word that will be repeated in just a moment. So it's this contrast. Keep this in mind as we as you keep going. There's this contrast between Moses saying, who am I? And the Lord saying, I will be. Who am I versus I will be. So he says, I will be with you. And this will be the sign. By the way, here's a sign that, that God gives. And sometimes God gives us signs that that just require faith. He says, here's a sign for you. And he'll give him more later, by the way. But he says, this is a sign that I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. In other words, after you've gone through all these things that are super, super difficult, then you'll know that I was with you. It's like, oh, this this requires faith. Well, there's a another one, Moses trying to get out of it. Number two, he says, well, I don't know your name. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Why would they ask Moses this? Well, Moses was raised as an Egyptian in Pharaoh's household. It's not that the Jews, the Hebrews, don't know the name of God, right? They, they call him in, on him with many names, El Shaddai, you know, Mighty God, the Most High. Remember, that goes back to Melchizedek. There's lots of names, uh, but it, the most common name that the Lord has revealed is the Lord, or in Hebrew, Yahweh. It's not that they don't know. It's that they don't know that Moses knows because he's an Egyptian. He wasn't raised with them necessarily. And so they say, well, okay, uh, what's his name? This God that we're supposed to follow. Is it Ra? Is it Amon or some other Egyptian God? What shall I say to them? Well, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And we like to think, especially as this is the, as it's translated in Greek and in, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, this is translated Ego and me. And Jesus uses this many times. John chapter 8, before Abraham was, I am. Many other times, he specifically hearkens back to this phrase, I am, or I am who I am. We could literally translate this something like, I will be who I will be. I am who I am. The I am the existing one. But he doesn't really say that that's his name. It's almost like that's a a definition of his name. And why am I saying that? Well, he goes on and says this and say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, right? The Lord in caps, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Not I am who I am. That's a definition of his name or it's a unique way to say his name. Uh, but that's not, that's not his name in the sense of that's who we should call on him as. How do I know or how do we know? Because I am, it's never reused as a name for God. Although 
it would have been recognized as God's revelation of himself. But the word Lord or Yahweh is used over 5,000 times. So what does God call himself? He calls himself Yahweh. And I am defines that. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am. It goes back to what Moses said. Who am I versus I will be. Right? So anyway, his name is Yahweh. And he makes these promises that he will stretch out his hand and strike Egypt and, and give his favor and he will rescue. Right? So that's. Uh, that's the story. Moses is not done trying to get out of it. We'll look at that more tomorrow. He has a, three more excuses trying to get out of it, which I think is a good reminder for us when the Lord calls us. We have at least five excuses, maybe more. We could outdo Moses, right? I bet we can. All right, let's flip over to Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew 17, we didn't, I didn't really say anything about it yesterday, but Jesus, uh, he says, there are some here who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And people have thought, well, Jesus must have been wrong because every one of the apostles who were there, they tasted death and they didn't see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So Jesus must have been wrong. They must have thought, well, Jesus must come back before all the apostles die. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying. What's the very next context? Some will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And we see the three men, Peter, James, and John, going up with Jesus on this mountain. And there on this mountain, and this is a one of those many, happens many times in the Bible, where God reveals himself, his glory on a mountain. And so he does so here. He revealed to Peter, James, and John who he was. And along with him, he has Moses and Elijah, representatives of the law and the prophets. And the main thing to take away there is he who he really is, is full of glory. He is the Lord of glory. And also, he ought to be listened to. This, the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. By the way, if you want to read Peter's later account of this in his own words, check out Second Peter chapter 1. And then we have the second time on the way down from the mountain. Just notice here the turn in, in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the focus. This is verse 12. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Not only did John the Baptist, who is basically Elijah, fulfilling the ministry of Elijah, so also the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. So he's reminding them what's going to happen to him. And then Jesus heals this, this boy who has a demon, is demon-possessed. And notice, this is just another example of a concerned parent coming to Jesus. How many times have we seen this and will we see this in these Gospels? So many parents who are concerned for their children, they come to Jesus. And what do they say? What does he say? Verse 15, uh, Matthew 17, verse 15, he says, Lord, have mercy on my son. So in church, when we cry out to the Lord, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, Lord, have mercy, we are bringing not our, only ourselves, but our children, our loved ones to the Lord to the only one who can have mercy and do all the things that we were reading about in Exodus. And then Jesus foretells again that he will suffer. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they'll kill him. He'll be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. Interesting here, it says the Son of Man is about to be delivered. Do we have any idea what time of year this is? Yeah, actually we do. This is an interesting thing. The very next section, the story, in at least in the ESV, it has a little title, The Temple Tax, above it, right? Not 
not inspired, not part of the Bible, just a, a heading in the ESV. I've read this before quickly thinking, okay, this is, you know, more of these publicans or tax collectors who, who are trying to get money for Caesar, but it's not at all. This is money being collected for the temple. This temple tax would have been collected, and we know this from the Mishnah, the, the Jewish writings, that this would have been collected in the month leading up to Nisan. Nisan was the month where there was Passover. All right, so that's in-depth. But this was instituted by God in Exodus chapter 30, uh, verse 11, and so on. It says that there was supposed to be an annual census for everyone who was 21 years or older. Everybody was supposed to pay a half shekel. And what was it for? Uh, Exodus tells us it's for the service of the tent of meeting. In other words, to support uh, the tabernacle or later the temple. And they were supposed to pay a, a half shekel. Well, here in this story, we, we see Jesus end up uh, miraculously, we don't see the outcome of the miracle, but it's implied that that Jesus pays a shekel for him and Peter, uh, which is, uh, the, the Greek word there is stator, which is the authorized sanctuary shekel that did not require a money changer. And the people who knock on the door, they're not, they're not Roman tax collectors. They are, these are Levites. They are the ones who are authorized to collect this temple tax um, by Moses. Why are they collecting this tax? Because to support the temple, the work of the temple, to maintain the temple, to maintain the gates, the roads, all these things around the temple. They don't know that the great king for whom the temple is built is on the other side of that door when they're knocking on the door. They have no idea. But Jesus, for the sake of not offending, he goes along with them. And so uh, they ask Peter, hey, um, doesn't your teacher pay the tax? And Peter says, yeah, he does. And when Peter came into the house, Jesus already knew what he was going to ask. So Jesus spoke to him first and asked Peter, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And he said, from others, Jesus said, well, then the sons are free. Jesus is saying to Peter, you, you and I, we are free from the stipulations of the law of Moses, because those all led up to me coming. We can think about the laws of Moses. Those were given temporarily. You can read that in uh, Galatians 3 and 4, that they were set up almost as a tutor or a, a guardian until Christ came. And probably uh, the law of Moses ended around the time when Jesus was baptized. And I can I could show you that if you have questions, a few different verses of why I think that. Regardless, uh, here in this story, it says, However, not to give offense to them, Jesus says, Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a stator, a shekel. This, to, this amount of money that will pay for both you and I are temple taxes. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So Jesus pays it. He pays it almost playfully, showing that he is Lord above that which led up to him. Our other thing I want to point out is from Psalm 22. It starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is probably familiar. These words were spoken by Jesus on the cross. And, and we can probably assume that Jesus is not only saying the first verse. He's probably praying out loud this whole psalm. He would have known these by heart. And... Interesting enough, Matthew takes Psalm 22 into his gospel. And in chapter 27 and 28, he alludes or quotes or cites 
at least one, two, three, four, six times. Six different times he is quoting from Psalm 22. This Psalm 22 is about my Lord, about Jesus. Interesting about Psalm 22, if you read it, it it describes crucifixion. Crucifixion did not even exist yet when King David is, is writing this psalm. It's a prophecy about the one who would come and who would suffer ultimately for us. Well, we will stop there for today, rejoicing that the Lord sees our affliction and he acts on it. He remembers his covenant. He's the God of the living. He's come down to save us. The angel of the Lord is our Savior, this messenger, God himself, Jesus Christ. We rejoice that he has set us free from the stipulations that we could not keep, and he has given us great gifts. He has made us sons and daughters in the kingdom. He is our great king, the one who would come to redeem us. So, truly, go in peace. Serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.